Well, I heard an interesting story, a true story, about a man in an Arizona circus. He used to train animals for the movies. How'd you like that job? And somebody asked him one time, I guess it was an extra on the set, he says, how do you tie down? There were there was a mama elephant and a baby elephant, and he said, how do you tie down this six-ton elephant with the same size stake that the baby elephant uses? And the trainer said, oh, that's easy. He said, when they're babies, we stake them down. And they pull and they tug against that stake and they can't get free. And they try it again and again and again. And finally, the elephant's great memory kicks in. And he remembers, no matter what, he can't break free. So that as he grows, when he thinks about pulling against that stake, he remembers, I can't do it. I've tried a thousand times. And by the time he gets to be a six-ton elephant, he still remembers that he can't pull up the stake, even though if he were to just do a flip of his head or a pull of his foot, he would jerk it free. You know, I heard that story and thought, that's a lot like us in the Christian life. We are a lot like elephants. When we're young and very impressionable, Sometimes some unthinking or insensitive person says it to us. Maybe it's a parent or a sibling or a teacher or a pastor or somebody of the opposite sex. They tell us things like, you know, your nose looks funny. (laughs) Or uh, you're not very attractive. Or you know what? You don't do that right. You're clumsy. And all of a sudden, wham, we drive a stake in the ground. And we walk through life chained to that statement. And we can't pull, we think we can't pull away from it. The words embed in our brains like a stake tied to a six-ton elephant. You know, and even as adults, uh, they change from other people's words to our own words, and we begin telling ourselves these kind of things, like, I blew it. There's no hope for me. Everybody has a balanced, joyful, victorious Christian life but me. That's just because you're looking at Facebook. That's why that's happening. Nobody ever puts how they rolled out of bed on Facebook. I was telling Kathy a couple of weeks ago, wouldn't it be great if one Sunday we just all committed, and we're going to do it, one Sunday, we're just all going to come just like we got out of bed. <laughs> the crazy thing is we would have to have name tags because nobody would know who anybody else is. But wouldn't that be fun? And all the ladies said no. (laughs) Trouble is, most of us guys wouldn't look that different, to be quite honest. There was a time in a former Sunday school class that the host and the hostesses actually went by and picked up people as they were and took them to the party. And it was with all of us ladies. Horror of horrors. Not gonna happen to me. 
But it was fun. It was amusing. Probably the only time that's ever going to happen is the rapture. <laughs> the rapture is the first and only come-as-you-are party that Jesus is going to have. Of course, we're changed in the blink of an eye, thank God. But as adults, we'll tell ourselves this, these same lies. Everybody's got a great life but me. There's no hope. I failed or I can't do anything right. And a lot of times, if we're honest, we'll, tra- we'll trace back the lies we're telling ourselves to the lies that we heard a long, long time ago. But it doesn't have to be true of us what's true of an elephant. Let's look together at Mark chapter 15. Mark 15 We're going to start at verse 42, right where we left off. The disciples were feeling a lot like like, uh, elephants, if I can take that metaphor here into the Passion Week. They had just followed Jesus for three and a half years, believing that he would bring in the kingdom of God just like he said he would. All the way up through the Passion Week, and then to their shock, Jesus is arrested. He He is... Uh, condemned and he is crucified. They all flee in fear prior to this. They deny him, i.e. Peter. They betray him, Judas. And ultimately they all desert him. What they wanted to happen didn't happen. And that's because they were so devastated, not simply because Jesus died, but because their dream died, their expectation of what following Christ should look like died, and it died a brutal, cruel death. Again, think about your own life. I don't know that any of us chose to follow Jesus Christ initially because we felt like it was going to be uh, a real life of suffering. We followed Jesus with a great hope, certainly, of our eternal salvation, but also with some expectation that if we lived a good moral life, you know, he would, he would take care of us. He would dote on us. And what we found in reality is he has done those things, but along with the difficulties also come challenges that we never could have imagined. This is what the disciples faced, and they were absolutely devastated. And it's interesting that they would be in light of the fact that Jesus had told them multiple times, we've seen throughout the Gospel of Mark, what would occur. And yet when it did occur, they were, they were floored. And he also told them why it would occur. Jesus said back in chapter 10 that he would die as a ransom for many, that he would die as a substitute. Well, Mark chapter 15, let's pick it up again now in verse 40. Look at the context just prior to this. You'll see that Jesus has been on the cross, and he has just given up his spirit. He died, verse 37, verse 38, the, the veil is torn in two. The centurion claims or proclaims, this is the Son of God, now verse 40. There were also some women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the the mother of James the Less, and Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him, and there were many other women 
who came up to him, came up with him to Jerusalem. We've got some names here that we're familiar with, but interestingly have not been mentioned yet in Mark. Mary Magdalene, this is the first time we see her name in the book. And we're going to see it several more times, all of a sudden rapid fire here, and we'll see why here in just a few minutes. But Mary Magdalene, we all know her name. It's as well known as any apostle. Uh, Yet the truth about her life, uh, unfortunately, has been sort of obscured by myths and best-selling novels and blockbuster movies and flat-out conjecture. Modern art paint her as everything from a prostitute to the infamous woman who was caught in adultery, and she's none of those things. She, uh, her name reveals that she came from Magdala, Mary Magdalene, just like Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus the Nazarene, typically a name, or as we'll see, Joseph of Arimathea. A lot of times your, the, the place name is associated with your name to uh, give a designation not only of uh, make you unique, but also to express where you're from. Mary came from a little village on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee called Magdala. And if you go to Israel today, you can go to Magdala. They have recently unearthed the synagogue that was there from the time of Christ. Uh, it's a real tempting rabbit trail to get into, but any, they, uh, the synagogue there has been preserved from the first century. Capernaum also has a synagogue, but it dates several centuries later because the initial first century synagogue where Jesus was was destroyed. But um, the one in, in Mary's town has been preserved, and that's because of a devastation that happened there, and it was able to be buried and preserved. So it's amazing. You go there, you can see the synagogue that Mary no doubt would have used as she worshipped. You can see the, the synagogue that probably Jesus taught in because we're told that he taught in all that area, and there's a synagogue from the first century, almost certainly Jesus taught there, which is really neat because when you go, you can see exactly where the rabbi would have sat when he taught, and you can see Jesus would have been right there. Neat. So Mary, and we're told from the Gospel of Luke that Jesus cast demons from Mary Magdalene. No wonder her devotion to him was so incredible to be literally delivered from the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of God's great son. There's another Mary mentioned here in these verses. Um, She's Mary, mother of James the Less and Joseph. Apparently these were well-known people during that time. And also Salome, just one simple name is given. She is, if you do some cross-referencing, she's probably the mother of James and John, the apostles. So why mention these ladies? Well, because they're soon going to play a very significant role in this narrative. But one thing I'd like you to notice about them, notice that it describes them as looking on from a distance. You see that? It says that they were, verse 41, um, no, verse 40, there were some women looking on from a distance. Where have we seen that phrase before? Who recently has been looking from a distance? Peter, exactly. So that phrase sort of should raise a flag in your mind because these ladies are initially painted in a very positive light, but from a distance sort of brings a question mark in in your mind. All right, well, let's, uh, 
Let's continue. Verse 42. When evening had already come, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. And he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now we're told that the Sanhedrin condemned Christ, and yet we're also told that not all were in agreement with it. Mark doesn't tell us that. Mark just gives us the generalization that the council came to this consensus. But the reality is they weren't all on board with it. Joseph of Arimathea was one of them. Luke tells us very clearly that Joseph had not approved of the Sanhedrin's decision. John tells us that Joseph was a secret disciple, but he was afraid of the Jews, so he kept it a secret. But he was a secret disciple of Jesus. But now Joseph makes it no secret. Mark refuses to allow us to pigeonhole a number of people throughout his gospel. Think about, just think back through the gospel a little bit with me. The scribes as a whole were not positive, but negative. And yet you have a scribe who Jesus says you are not far from the kingdom of God in the book of Mark. Roman soldiers as a whole, not positive group. And yet we have, we saw last week, the centurion who makes this great statement, this was the son of God, back in verse 39. And here you have Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Sanhedrin, not a positive group, and yet you have these exceptions. I love that. I love that Mark says, we've got a bad group, but there's an exception. With the scribes, with the soldiers, with the Sanhedrin, and you know what? With us. Because it's real easy to pigeonhole people, whether it's a race, whether it's a, a financial status, whether it's the other side of the tracks, wherever it is, there is a real temptation to just kind of lump people all in one ball and cast them out. When the reality is, they may love Jesus Christ just as much as you, maybe more. It was true with these groups. Joseph gathers courage. And initially when you read this, you think, okay, Joseph gathered courage to go face Pilate. Maybe. It could also be because he was a secret disciple. Joseph gathered courage because now he's come out as a follower of Jesus Christ to go claim the body. And Joseph realizes what's going to happen next time he shows up at the next Sanhedrin potluck. You are a disciple of that Messiah guy, that Nazarene. And Joseph is going to have to say yes. Same with Nicodemus. We aren't mentioned. He isn't mentioned here, but John mentions him as well as being a godly uh, follower of Jesus Christ. So Joseph gathers courage, goes in and asks for the body. Um, And it's interesting that it says that uh, Jesus entered and left or I, I, I guess I should say it's interesting to make the observation that Jesus entered and left this world by the hands of two men named Joseph. That's fascinating. Literally, from the womb to the tomb, there's a man named Joseph there, and his hands are part of the process. It's probably nothing to that, but it's, it's a fascinating observation. Look at verse 44. Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time. 
And summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. And ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Joseph bought a linen cloth, took him down, wrapped him in the linen cloth, and laid him in a tomb which has been hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were looking on to see where he was laid. The language that Mark uses here is meant to remind us of something that happened back in chapter 6. So keep your finger here in Mark 15, flip back to chapter 6, and look at a verse real quick. Mark chapter 6, verse 29. John the Baptist has just been killed by Herod, and we're told in verse 29, when his disciples heard about this, they came, took away his body, and laid it in a tomb. Took away his body, laid it in a tomb. So now flip back to Mark 15, and you see some of the same language. But notice, it's not the disciples doing it. And Mark has labored throughout the, the gospel, particularly leading up to the Passion Week, to show that the disciples have dropped the ball. And as, we've, as I've tried to emphasize all throughout Mark, Mark isn't shaming the apostles. He's saying they're just people. They're just like us. And here at a point where John's disciples came and took care of their, their teacher, Jesus' disciples did not. It took Joseph to come to take Jesus' body and to lay it in a tomb. And that's exactly what he does. He comes and lays it in a tomb. The centurion confirmed that Jesus is dead. Of course, Pilate had to know that. But Jesus' burial confirms that he was absolutely dead. I mean, you don't bury someone who's not dead. You don't wrap him in, in, a, in a shroud. You don't, as Mark says, put 75 pounds of spices in between the folds of the wrapping. Jesus was dead. And his burial, as part of the important part of the gospel, that Jesus was crucified, buried, and raised on the third day, well, of course he was buried. But the fact that he was buried emphasizes the fact that he died. Jesus truly was dead. Chapter 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might come and anoint him. So again, we've got these ladies mentioned. The apostles are nowhere to be seen. Again, Mary Magdalene. Now we know why she was introduced. These ladies are introduced in verse 40. Because it's these ladies, or some of these same ladies, who come to show their respects and to take care of some final details that they weren't able to do because the Sabbath was rushing upon them and they weren't able to complete what they wanted to do with Christ's body. Mary Magdalene is there. Mary, the mother of James. Interesting that uh, he, she's mentioned as the mother of James, but James was Jesus' half-brother. So this is Jesus' mother, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Jesus, and Salome, again, her, she is mentioned, 
who would have been uh, Mary's sister, brought spices, and notice what they were coming to do. So that, there's the purpose. This is why they were coming, so that they might come and anoint him. It doesn't say that they came to the tomb that great Sunday morning to greet the risen Lord. They came to anoint a corpse. They weren't expecting the resurrection, which is amazing because Jesus had talked about it repeatedly. The disciples certainly weren't expecting the resurrection, even though Jesus had talked about it repeatedly. In fact, there was one point after the transfiguration when Jesus says, don't tell anybody about this until the Son of Man has risen from the dead, that they actually said, I wonder what he means, risen from the dead. For some reason, it just never clicked. And it didn't even click with these ladies. They weren't coming expecting to see the risen Lord. They were coming to anoint Christ's body. Interesting, the only people that remembered, it's not recorded in Mark, but the only people that remembered Jesus said he would rise from the dead were the religious leaders. That's why they put a guard in front of the tomb and sealed it, because they realized that if the rumor got out that he had been raised from the dead, to quote them, the last deception will be worse than the first. If we've got a resurrected Messiah on our hands, then now all of a sudden we've really got a problem. Interesting that the disciples didn't remember Jesus said that, and yet the Jewish leaders did. So they come to anoint him, and look at what happens. Verse 2, very early on the, on the first day of the week, so it's Sunday, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away although it was extremely large. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. That's kind of a tame translation of the word amazed. I think the NIV does a better job. It says alarmed, I think, or at least the the older NIV says that, that they were alarmed. But I like that. They were alarmed. You think... Imagine, picture this situation. You know, John tells us that they, they, they left in the dark. So they left in the dark. They get there just as the sun is rising. Mark says that the sun had risen. So it's that eerie, you know, great time of morning to get out and take that Facebook picture of the sunrise. It's that time of day. Just barely light. They get to the tomb and they see that the, the stone has been rolled away already. And they walk in to a dark tomb, and they see a live young man sitting there. Good morning. Don't you think that would have been a little bit alarming? You don't expect to see a live person in a tomb, especially wearing white. This this would have been uh, very alarming. In fact, uh, the word that's used here uh, uh, is a word, it's, it's a verb of strong emotion, referring to being distressed over something very unusual. So uh, surprised or amazed is a little tame. Uh, we would say in today's terms that they freaked out. They, re- they freaked out. Would have been pretty spooky. They walk in and, and instead of seeing Jesus' body or even an empty tomb, they see a live man. And look at what this this live man 
says. Well, before, I, before we read what he says, let me mention something that's worth mentioning. In the first century, in the first century, a woman's testimony in a Jewish court was not admissible. It's not very politically correct today, but that's the way it was back then. A woman could not testify in a in an official court. Her her uh, testimony was not admissible. Which begs the question: If you were going to make up a story about a risen Savior. Why would you put as the first witnesses to it someone whose testimony would be invalid? Unless it was true. If I was going to make up this story, I would not have put a couple of witnesses that you couldn't trust their their testimony. Um, That supports the fact that this actually happened. So they were amazed. And the angel says, look at verse 6. So they were amazed, and he said to them, Do not be amazed. (laughs) Too late. Do not be freaked out. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. This young man, notice his verb tenses. He uses passive verb tenses. He has been crucified. That means somebody did it to Jesus. He has been crucified. Someone crucified him. But then it gets the, 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 our translation, at least in the New American Standard, here is a little fuzzy. It says, uh, he, he has been crucified. He has risen. Literally, the text is, he has been raised. It's passive as well. And if it's passive as well, then that means someone did it to Jesus. God raised Jesus. He didn't didn't raise himself. God raised Jesus, God the Father. In fact, this is such a significant teaching all throughout the rest of our New Testament. It is emphasized that God raised Jesus. Remember last week we saw with the... uh, the centurion, when Jesus died on the cross, in verse 39, the centurion was standing in front of him, breathed his last, Jesus breathed his last, said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Remember last week, we read that, and then we flip back to chapter 1. Right after Jesus dies here in verse 39, we're told also that the veil of the temple was torn in two. We turn back to chapter 1, and we also saw that at Jesus' baptism, the sky was ripped into. The only two times in the book of Mark that that word ripped is used. At Jesus' baptism, where the sky is ripped open. At Jesus' death, where the veil of the temple is ripped open. At Jesus' baptism, you have the voice of the Father saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. At the crucifixion, you have the centurion speaking and saying, This is the Son of God. So you have Mark creating this bookend with his, with his book, saying at the beginning Jesus is the Son of God, testified by God the Father himself. At the end, you have Jesus as the Son of God, testified by the centurion, but also by the fact that he was raised, is testified by God. Again, God is saying that he is my Son. Remember, as we look through, just think through um, verses in your mind with the New Testament. 
And here's one that you probably know, Romans 10:9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that what? God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Over and over and over throughout the gospel and throughout the New Testament, God raised Jesus from the dead. Why is that significant? I'm glad you asked that. Let's look at Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, very last verse. This is my favorite verse on the resurrection. And it's not even in the Gospels because of the truth of it. Oh, you've probably heard me share this before, and you definitely will hear it again. It is one of the most wonderful verses on the resurrection. Romans 4, 25. Paul writes, He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Look at the details of that. He was delivered over because of our transgression. Jesus died because of our sins, is what he's saying. Now look at this next part. And he was raised because of our justification. And he was raised. Again, was raised. God raised him. God raised him. Why? Because of our justification. Because we were forgiven. Because the the death on the cross satisfied God the Father. Isn't that great? I love Romans 4.25. That'd be a good one to put on my tombstone. 4.25. Love it. Okay, so back to Mark chapter 16. So he is not here. This man, we're told he's a young man. The other gospels clear it up. He's not just a young man. He's an angel. In fact, the other gospels say there are two angels, but there is one who does the speaking. So Mark refers to him. And he says he is not here, behold, which is not a word that we use a lot unless we're in church, behold. But it means look. He's not here. Look. And I love that because they had looked before. Remember at the end of verse uh, the end of chapter 15, verse 47, Mary Magdalene, the mother of Joseph, were looking on to see where he was laid. They saw where he was laid. And now this angel is saying, look where he was laid. He's not here. That place you looked before and he was, now look, because he's not. He has been raised. God has raised him from the dead. You will not see him here, but you will see him somewhere else. So look at verse 7. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee, There you will see him, just as he told you. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. What an unusual verse. Before we talk about these two verses, verses 7 and 8, let's talk about the verses that follow. And if you look in your margin, I hope there's some kind of an indication there that that explains, or maybe you have a footnote or something that says that verses 9 through 20 are not in the earliest manuscripts. And they're not in the most reliable earliest manuscripts. And oceans of ink have been spilt discussing, are these verses scripture or not? What an, 
it's been an interesting week, let me tell you, to read some of these arguments. But, um, so, verses 9 through 20, should they be in our Bible? Textual criticism was a subject in seminary that I thought was, honestly, was kind of dull. It's kind of boring. But how critical it is. Textual criticism is the, the discipline, and in some instances really the art, of trying to determine, or I should say trying to recognize, from the variance in Scripture, what's the original? What, what can we say is the original? If there's the passage that has variants of two different readings passed down, and when you copy something and there's a variant, then that variant gets copied and that gets copied, and so you have these trees of variants, and you have to try to trace it back, and so textual critics do all this, and I'm amazed at the skill with which they operate. Um, I almost brought Bruce Metzger's book. He has a, a textual commentary where basically, and Metzger is like the godfather of text critics. He is just um, uh, like the final voice. But he made a great statement that talks about these verses. And let me just give you kind of a bottom line summary. We could talk for a whole, uh, a whole time on just these verses and why they probably are not part of the original scripture. But one of the rules I remember learning in textual criticism is when you're looking at a passage and you're trying to figure out what's the original, the more difficult reading is what you should prefer. You should prefer the reading that's more difficult. In other words, it seems more odd. Why is that? Because you don't insert something that's odd into the text. You insert something to try to fix what's odd. When a scribe is reading through something and they think, well, surely they left something out. I'll put something in that will help. And that's what we have in a grand way here at the end of Mark 16. Mark ends very likely with verse 8. They leave and say nothing, and they're afraid. So you can understand why, in the traditions that followed, <laughs> Scribes would want to add pieces and parts of other Gospels from verses 9 through 20. You will find much of that same content elsewhere because it's a nicer ending than these ladies who have been so faithful up to this point to now all of a sudden flee in fear rather than to do what they're told. You don't add problems to the text. Scribes usually tried to fix what was the problem. So... It's got a short ending that ends at verse 8, and it's got a long ending that goes all the way down to verse 20, and there's even a, a verse after that that uh, some texts have added. So if the shorter reading is original, though, it's really easy to see why someone would add to it. Um, but if the longer ending was original, in other words, if we went all the way down through verse 20, then it doesn't make sense that the earliest manuscripts would lack those verses. Some say, well, you know, it was lost. I guess it could have been, but now we're sort of into conjecture. And if we're conjecturing, then give us the freedom on the other side to conjecture. Why would the Spirit of God have allowed that to happen? You know, no other book that was the case except Mark. Probably not. Also, I think a lot of people, well, I know a lot of scholars believe that Mark's gospel came first and in fact, I think that's probably the majority view. 
And many other scholars, Dr. Toussaint as well as Dr. Pentecost and many others, take it that Matthew was first, in which case the order of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, would actually be the order in which they were written. And I believe that that is the case. Matthew, I think, was written first because the early church were Jews. And Matthew was written to explain, if Jesus was the Messiah, why don't we have the kingdom? It it was the number one Jewish question at the time, and Matthew answers that question. Mark is written to Romans. So anyway, all of that. You have to address verse 9 through 20, so let's pretend we've addressed it. All right, so the question then, why does the gospel end with verse 8, assuming it has? They fled, we're told. It's the same word that's spoken of the disciples after their arrest, the very same verb. They flee Jesus in Gethsemane. Also, the word tell there in verse 7, it says they said nothing. It's the same word as verse 7 where the angel said go and tell. And instead, they flee and say nothing or they tell nothing. might have been a better translation to show the connection of it. Go and tell, but instead they flee and don't say anything. Don't. Nothing is told. Why would Mark end with the women being told to go and tell and instead they fail to do so? These last two verses, verse 7 and 8, give us a couple of principles that are really helpful to remember in your life and my life. And here's the first principle. These ladies demonstrate what the apostles have demonstrated all throughout the book, and it's this. Personal failure does not remove you from God's plan. Personal failure does not remove you from God's plan. This book ends with personal failure. Now, the great thing about it is the re- one of the reasons Mark didn't finish the book or didn't finish the story, as it were, is because everybody knew the ending of the story already. Oral tradition, history. Everybody knew that Jesus had been raised. In fact, Mark, writing the book, had failed. Remember John Mark. And yet here he is writing. Uh, Peter had failed, and yet Peter was the great apostle. So there, there is an essence here in which the end of the story isn't necessary to write because it was already understood, especially if Matthew had already been written. So Mark ends with failure to drive home the essential point that personal failure does not remove you from God's plan. In fact, we mentioned it a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about Peter's denial, but notice in verse 7, go tell his disciples and Peter. Peter had denied Christ, and specifically the angel says, don't leave Peter out of this good news. He has failed, but he is forgiven because Jesus has been raised by God. Not only that, as I mentioned, remember John Mark. Mark wrote this book. The young man uh, who went on the first missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas. And they got uh, halfway through or not far into this trip. John Mark saw some things he had never seen in Mama's house in Jerusalem. And for whatever reason, we aren't told why, to use Paul's words, Mark deserted them. And later, when they were going to go back on another mission trip, Paul decided, we're not taking John Mark. And Barnabas and Paul had such a sharp division that they parted ways. Barnabas took John Mark and went off, and they did some ministry, and uh, Paul took Silas and went off, and they did ministry 
It was a sharp disagreement. John Mark had failed, clearly had failed, at least in Paul's eyes. And yet it's wonderful to see that Paul would come around, or at least that John Mark would come to such a place under Barnabas's help, that in Paul's last book, in the last chapter, Paul says, bring Mark along, for he is useful to me. Now, John Mark has been useful not only to Paul, but the Spirit of God has seen to make John Mark useful to you and me because he wrote this great gospel. Mark was written by a person who failed under the tutelage of Peter, who failed, emphasizing that all the apostles blew it, ending with women who blew it. Why? To tell us that personal failure does not remove you from God's plan. Very helpful for us to remember. To come back to the elephant, the elephant is literally chained to a memory. The only thing that keeps that big elephant chained to the ground is a memory, not reality. Reality, a tug of his foot, he could be free. A memory keeps him chained. That doesn't have to be true of us. We don't have to uh, succumb to that, that kind of thinking. I love what D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says when you think about talking to ourselves and listening to the lie of the past. Lloyd-Jones says this, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself rather than talking to yourself? Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself rather than talking to yourself? Tell yourself truth. Don't listen to the voices that tell you you can't do it, those voices that you heard from the past, either from the childhood or from a pastor or from someone else, or even what you've told yourself in, the, uh, in your present adult life. Don't listen to the past voices. Tell yourself truth. And what is the truth? The truth is, and Peter. You could put your name there, too. Go tell his disciples and put your name. That he has gone ahead of you, and there you will see him. There is an anticipated fellowship, even though you've blown it. Again, going back to the elephant, renewing the mind. It comes by reading, pondering the Scripture, believing the truth that you are not staked to your past, or to someone else's judgment of you. And if we were to do that, I think like the adult elephant, we would see that through the strength that God has given us, we've grown. We're stronger. Stronger than we thought we might be. And that if we were to just, with God's help, lean against that stake a little bit, it would pop right out. And we'd realize that's not true of us any longer. In fact, it never was. It was just somebody else's judgment. <coughs> don't listen to the devil's lie that you're out of God's plan. That lie is simply intended to keep you staked and from being ineffective for God. Immerse your mind in the truth and pull free from some of those stakes. Here's the second principle. Here's the second principle. The success of God's plan does not depend on human performance. I think this is probably one of the biggest lessons to learn from Mark ending his gospel in this unusual way, to end with a person failing. 
The success of God's plan does not depend on human performance. Human performance shows these apostles all the way down to the last verse, the disciples, these ladies, failing. And yet God's plan hasn't failed. In fact, the angel told them, He is not here. Uh, Go to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. That was his plan all along. His plan hasn't failed. You'll see him in Galilee just as he told you. Human performance does not affect the success of God's plan. You know, Mark doesn't complete the story because Mark's readers knew the end of the story. The emphasis isn't on go and proclaim as much as it is on the privilege of our participation. I've called the message, A Tomb with a View Towards You, because that's where Mark leaves his gospel. We know the ending, but the, the, what we don't know is your ending. What we don't know is how will you respond. We know that these ladies, as well as all the apostles, turned around and began a faithful walk. Not a perfect walk, but a faithful walk. But Mark ends here to show these two principles. First of all, that personal failure does not remove you from God's plan. And second, the success of God's plan does not depend on human performance. What a great book. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for John Mark. For this young man who failed so miserably, we can see in the book of Acts, and yet we can also see how he came around to be faithful under Barnabas' encouragement, to be useful for Paul, and now useful for all of us by writing this great gospel that emphasizes denying self, taking up a cross, and following Jesus, of being a servant just like Jesus was. Father, we all feel like that elephant at times. And I just ask that in those moments where we're listening to the lies, that you would remind us of John Mark, that you'd remind us of Peter, of all these apostles, of these ladies here at the very end, who in a moment of reaction reacted poorly. And instead of denying self and taking up the cross, instead they tried to protect self and flee from the cross. We're the same. Help us to pull against the lies of our past, to trust you with our future. And we're so grateful that the success of your plan doesn't rest with us. It rests with you, just as you said. So we rededicate our hearts to you and recommit our lives to you. And once again, thank you for the Gospel of Mark. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Oh, by the way, next week we're going to start First Peter. First Peter. We just keep the Peter theme going here.